0: Great to see you. Uh, I'm glad that I didn't see you on April 15th. It would have been nasty. Yeah. Uh, when Mary emailed me and said that it looks like the forecast is going to be good, I said, yeah, well, no tornadoes, no tsunamis, no <laughs> water spouts, typhoons yet. You never know. Uh, Two-and-a-half-hour drive, which I'm glad I didn't have to do April 15th, so thank you for that. I'm glad to be with you, and for those of you who maybe don't know me, Uh, which probably most of you, I am the new regional executive for the Regional Synod of the Great Lakes. Uh, My wife and I got here last May, and so I've spent the year uh, getting to know churches and ministers and leaders throughout Michigan and Ohio, and so it's my pleasure to meet you officially. Um, We grew up in Minnesota, and then in a career in the Army, we moved around and have three grown children, and it just so happens that our daughter went to school in Michigan, and so we get to spend, uh, she, she and she settled in Michigan, so we get to spend Father's Day with her. So it'll be wonderful. Works out well. How many of you are fathers or have a father? Okay, good, good, yeah. Happy Father's Day. Father's are an amazing blessing when you think of God's purpose for fathers. Just an amazing blessing. But on this day, I also want to acknowledge that sometimes some men and women need healing from the memories. They need encouragement. They need hope that our perfect Heavenly Father does not suffer from the failures and the difficulties that earthly fathers do. So as I prepare... For the word, I would just like to pray for fathers and those who are in need of healing and hope and encouragement, and for all of our fathers. So will you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, we confess that it is sometimes difficult to understand what it means to be sinless, holy, and perfect, and pure. Because we are in a world that is broken. We're in a world that doesn't understand holiness or purity, and we don't see it much. So, Lord, you give us fathers who are intended to represent you to their children. And we thank you and praise you, Lord, for every father here and every father represented here who has done that for his children. Bless them give them a sense of joy of knowing that you have worked mightily in them and through them in their families and their marriages and with their children especially, that they have given them a leg up on what it means to know their Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who struggle with memories of relationships that weren't the way they wanted to be, hurt, pain, we ask for healing, and we pray that you might demonstrate that As perfect Heavenly Father, you are just and righteous. And you are the one who can give all those things that we so desperately need. And sometimes we look for them in the wrong places. So Lord, we give to you honor and glory and praise, and we offer this time to you. We offer you our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies, all that we have, all that we are so that we might love you more. In your Son's name we praise. Amen. So, uh, for those of you who see that the sermon title was, What's Love Got to Do With It? I sent Mary Beth some updated slides, and I'll tell you, I'm in a bit of of a phase here where I'm recognizing that I'm showing my age way too much. And so I said, what's love got to do with it? I may have a congregation where there are not too many people who are even going to recognize that reference. How many of you do? Oh, man, thank God bless you. Thank you so much. I feel younger already. <laughs> I didn't know if people would recognize Tina Turner references or not. It worked in the 80s. It doesn't necessarily work in the 2018. So for those of you who are younger, Tina Turner, she was a singer. She sang this song called What's Love Got to Do With It. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but it's a close emotion? (coughs) Anyway, so I changed the title thinking that, you know, maybe that would be more user-friendly. The point is it's the same sermon, different title, and we're still going to look at John 14. Have you ever been told, as I was, as a young Christian or as an older Christian, you just have to try harder to deny yourself. You're you're talking about wanting to obey and you're talking about wanting to be more faithful and you just desire and, and you want to be all that God wants you to be. And somebody says, well, you know, obedience is just a matter of the will. If you've got the will, there's a way. Or... If you want to obey hard enough, you will. Anybody ever hear that? Anybody ever been told something like that? You just got to try harder. You just got to do more. You just got to gut it out. Well, to that I say, (laughs) that is not true. And today I am going to show you why that's not true. And I'm going to show you what the truth is. Because uh, when I was called and asked if I would preach, I, was, I said, well, what, what topic? Are, are there anything you want me to talk about? She said, just tell us something that, that will affect our spiritual lives. Help us grow. And so I decided what I'm going to share with you is the most important thing I have ever learned in my Christian life. Seriously. This is the most important lesson I have ever learned. And it took a long time to learn. A few years ago, I was um, just convicted that I really wanted to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, I really did, as best as I could. But I really had no idea what that meant. So in 2011, I started a study, and I started praying, and I started asking God, show me what that means, please. Because I'd been told... Got to try harder. Oh, you just got to do it. Well, fake it until you make it. And to those I say, (sighs) wrong. I'm a trained spiritual director, and through all of my training and working with people in spiritual direction, one of the greatest things that they face is guilt or shame because they haven't lived up to what someone else expects them to live up to. Your heavenly Father says, I love you. Don't let somebody else shame you because you aren't doing what they want you to do. Here's the truth. John 14, we're going to look at verses 21 to 24. I was uh, reading through this for Easter. I was looking at the upper room discourse, and it just struck me that I uh, I, I needed to explain this and get into the depths of what it means, so this is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room, and he says to them, "Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them, and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, who do you intend to show yourself? Uh, excuse me, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So this is one of the essential teachings from the upper room. It's critically important for disciples of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He will teach you. He'll remind you of all I've said. I must die to rise, so don't be surprised when that happens. And the relationship of love and obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey. If you love me, you will obey. He didn't say, if you just try hard enough, if you just have a strong enough willpower, if you just fake it long enough, it'll happen. Not true. Jesus said there's a direct connection between love and obedience. Very clearly, love and obedience are connected, according to Jesus, and he ought to know. So, that's great, right? But wait, there's more. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So let's add that to the equation. And wait, there's even more. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Hmm. The love, and he's not talking about pagans. He's not talking about non-Christians. He's talking about people who have professed to love God. The love of not some not many, the love of most will grow cold. And the other key here is that the one who stands firm. Stands firm in what? Stands firm in love. That's the context. Stand firm in love and you will be saved. Hmm. Put those all together and here are the relationships. Love equals obedience, equals knowing Christ, equals eternity. So folks, I have to tell you, I don't know if you've ever heard these. uh, some of the folks who kind of poo-poo the idea that love is the central concept in the Christian life. But if you ask me, it is. Love is the central concept in the Christian life. As a matter of fact, if you ask the question, what's love got to do with it, the answer is everything. Everything. I have looked at the Scriptures from conceivable angles, and I'll tell you, as a pastor, as a teacher, I see nothing that is more central to our Christian lives than this concept. Love. Love has everything to do with it. Growing in love is a central concept. It's the core of the Christian life if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are growing in love for God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is no way around it. You can try to get around it, but there is no way around it. If you say you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are saying you're growing in a love relationship with Him. We feed, we water, We nurture love for God and our neighbors or it shrivels and dies because we have heard, we have seen that our love can grow cold and does. Jesus said the love of most will grow cold. Let's just remember. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. False prophets will appear to deceive people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm will be saved. Remember, this is standing firm in love rather than the love of, the love of God growing cold. The love for Jesus we stand firm in. We nurture it. We grow it. We water it. Sometimes we miss this because we're so focused on other things. Sometimes you can miss the love. Sometimes you can miss the idea that Jesus is really telling us we are to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's that called? The greatest commandment that fulfills the law and the prophets is not try harder, do better, be bigger, better, stronger than the other guy. Show how bad everybody else is so you look better. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the one who perseveres in love will persevere to eternal life. How do we grow to obey? Parents, we learn basically from our childhood on that uh, obedience first is kind of the carrot and stick way. You reward obedience and you punish disobedience, right? The carrot and the stick. Some of you probably have learned that and you're good at that. But that's only one way that we learn to grow to obey. There's another way. Later on, after we get out of our toddlerhood and get somewhere in the age of five, six, seven, maybe eight or nine, depending. We find out that we do the right thing because doing the right thing is right. We do it because it's right. And we don't do the wrong thing because it's wrong. Do the right thing because it's right. We don't do the wrong thing because it's wrong. Right? Right. Or or wrong. Anyway, yes, Correct. Yeah, so there's the carrot and the stick, There's right is right, but there's another way. There's another step to understanding and learning what it means to truly obey, and it's this one. We obey because we love the one who taught us right and wrong. Now folks, I will tell you that if you have learned the carrot and stick approach, That's okay for toddlers, and that's okay for baby Christians. But if you live that out as a life system, that is called legalism. It doesn't work in a healthy way. Your love is not going to grow if you are a legalist. And if you live out the right is right and wrong is wrong as a life system, that's moralism. And that also does not increase your love. And it also doesn't save. Do you see that? although it's necessary to learn to obey from carrot and stick when you're a baby, when you're a little toddler, that's not a life way. You've got to grow. And although it's true that right is right and wrong is wrong and we're supposed to do right and not do wrong, that's true. But it's not a life system. God does not intend us to live as legalists or moralists. Neither one of those will save you. Only this will save you. Only love and obedience born from love will save you. That's Jesus' point. And that's the point of why God is so focused on love in the Scriptures. And sometimes we miss it. Obedience, you see, is not about performance. Performance. Obedience is about growth. We live in a performance culture that tells us that obedience is really about external achievements. It's about how much we have, what we've accomplished, how many pieces of paper we got on our wall. It's about all that stuff outside. Just have more, do better, try harder, get more recognition, and you will be a success. It's not true. That's merely external conformity. Anyone here ever had someone, a child perhaps, you said, please do this. And they got the scowl on their face and screwed up their jaw and just were obviously unhappy. And they stormed off and they went and did it. (laughs) Is that obedience? And the answer is, no. It is not obedience. Not biblical obedience. Not God-honoring obedience. It is conformity. And folks, there's a big difference scripturally between conformity and love. Loving obedience. Because only love-born obedience is truly obedience. If we do what God says and resent it and hate it, and are angry about it? Okay, fine. I'll do it this time, but it's not right. I don't like it. Okay. Well, external conformity, of course, is better than disobedience, but it isn't truly obedience, is it? How many parents of you would love to say to your son and daughter, uh, hey, I would love to loan you the car, be back by 10. And they take the keys and complain all the way out the door, slam the door on the way out. I wanted to stay out till midnight, and you said 10. Fine. Well, How many would love that? You just love that, right? I mean, it is so wonderful that they appreciate and obey. It's not obedience. They come home at 10 o'clock, that's not obedience. It's conformity. See, because love starts internally. Love is a relationship. Love is not about performance. It's about relationship. Remember the parable of the prodigal son or the waiting father, depending on what way you see it? And uh, the prodigal son came back and the father throws a party and the older brother, remember him? Remember him? The father throws a party and the son doesn't even go into the party and the father comes out to check on the older son and he says, what? You never even gave me a party. I obeyed you all these years, and look what you did, you miserable father. You never even gave me so much as a little calf that I can celebrate with my friends. I am not going into that party. Is that obedience? Did he really obey his father all those years? No. No. He conformed because he was angry and resentful against his father. That's not obedience. Biblical obedience, God-honoring obedience comes from a heart of love. Period. How do we grow in love? Here's the key. And this is the secret, if there's a secret to it. This is what I learned. The spiritual fathers from centuries past showed us a way that an an essential component of obedience is called delectation. Delectation is simply um, finding enjoyment or taking delight in something or finding pleasure in or finding satisfaction. It's relishing, right? It's that idea. Delectation, you see, is what we do when we have something presented to us For example, a pint of Haagen-Dazs, vanilla bean, or rum raisin, it doesn't matter. Eh. But I'm on a diet, so I can't have Haagen-Dazs, so I'm just not going to think about Haagen-Dazs, because I really shouldn't have it, it's not good. A couple minutes later I'm thinking, you know, it's been a while since I've had ice cream. Haagen-Dazs really is the best. You know that vanilla bean? I think that's the best vanilla bean ice cream I have ever had, unless it's rum raisin. Because, e- believe it or not, even that ice cream makes raisins edible. And then it's like, oh, it would be so smooth and creamy going down. I am kind of hot, and I have really suffered a lot this week. Maybe I deserve it just a little bit. So I go to the freezer. I pull out the and Dazs. Rip open the cover. Take off the little inner liner. <laughs> And it's gone, man. It's gone. See, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to have it, it was presented to me. I saw it with my eyes, lust of the eyes, lust for the flesh, yeah, it's probably both, and I thought about it. The process of delectation was when I said, "Oh man, that vanilla bean is pretty good yeah." I haven't had it. Delectation is dwelling on, delighting in, thinking about the idea. It's the idea, and then you act on it. That's delectation. And that can happen both negatively, which is the process of temptation. You know why we do what we're told not to do? Because somebody suggested something That you can do. Okay, Tommy, don't put your hand on that burner. What's he going to do? Puts his hand on the burner. Why? Because we just suggested that there's something he doesn't know about, and now he's going to try it. Right? It's delectation. Philippians 4.8, folks, is the process of delectation. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about such things. Think about those things. Why? Because God knows that delectation is how we get from an idea to action. If you want to be more loving, if you want to do right, if you want to obey, don't think about all those things that are wrong and grievous Think about what's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And guess what? You will become a more obedient person. Why? Because that is God. When you look at what's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy in this world, you're looking at what God is doing. When you acknowledge something that's good in another person, you're acknowledging what's right about a person that God has done. If you want to obey more, love more. Appreciate what you see around you that God has done. Grow in your appreciation of those things. Take pleasure in them. Find delight in them. Relish them. And you will become more obedient. This is delectation in its finest form. And believe it or not, I had my wife take a picture on the right of me just last night. It's amazing what a pint of Haagen-Dazs will do for you. The enemy knows that we are made by God to think about things. And when we think about them and we dwell on them and we delight in them, we act on them. That's why He presents pictures and images and sounds to us. That's why He uses our eyes against us because that gets us in the process of delectation. And if we get wound up in that circle of thinking about the haagen when we should be thinking about the joy of being on a treadmill for exercise. Okay, that might be an extreme example. When we think about the joy of spending time with our loved ones and the blessing that that is, the enemy uses it against us. And what God says through Paul in Philippians is use God's purpose, God's way. Think about those things that are right and noble and pure. And you will act on them. Love is the foundation of obedience, folks. It's not willpower. It's not just knowing right from wrong. It's not gutting it out. It's not conformity. It's not performance. It's love. If I want to be more obedient, I work on loving Jesus more with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because I obey the Father because I love Him. My three grown children are a great blessing to me. God overcame our parenting failures, our weaknesses. And I will tell you that we had to raise them through the phase of carrot and stick. One of them more than another. And we had to raise them through teaching them that right is right and wrong is wrong. But by the grace of God, we were able to teach them also. That obedience is a relationship. it's about loving the one who taught you. My kids honor me because they would never, ever do something that goes contrary to what I taught them, willingly. And I feel loved. I feel loved more for my adult children than ever with little ones because of that. Imagine our Heavenly Father, how He feels when we say, Lord, I love you so much. I just want to do what pleases you because I love you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to do what pleases you because we love you. You are our Heavenly Father. Amen.